And when Kermit the Frog, Kermit the Frog, sang, it's not easy being green. Being green. Do you remember that one? Having to spend each day the color of the leaves. I want you to know that he was wrong. When I think it might be nicer. He was wrong. Being red or yellow or gold or something much more colorful like that. It is easy. It's not only easy, it's lucrative and it's right to be green. He was also unnecessarily rude to Miss Piggy, I thought, uh, Kermit the Frog. But it is easy uh, to be green. We have the technology. Well, Boris Johnson and 195 other world leaders will soon find out if Kermit is wrong when they gather in Glasgow in November for the annual UN Climate Summit, COP26. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly, and today on The Detail, 30,000 people are heading to the conference, including Climate Change Minister James Shaw and Rod Oram, who we think is the only New Zealand-based journalist going to COP26. So I want to be there in Glasgow because the time is desperately short for humanity to get its act together on this. It was in Paris in 2015 that countries reached the landmark agreement to try to limit the increase in global temperatures at 1.5 degrees Celsius. The goal for Glasgow is to keep that 1.5 alive. New Zealand will release its plan for cutting emissions later this year, but already campaigners and activists are having a swipe. Meantime, one of the great lefty heroes of the world is, of course, Jacinta Ardern, Queen Ardern, as we like to call her here, and she has said all the right things about climate change. It is a matter of life and death. Yet despite the fact that Jacinta Ardern has said all the right things, passed all the right laws, set all the right targets, Greta Thunberg still is going after Jacinta Ardern and New Zealand for not doing enough when it comes to climate change. Well, James Shaw has copped some flack already about COP26, but for different reasons. He insists he needs to be there. So what is the difference between Paris and Glasgow? Well, Paris was a breakthrough, but the minister says what got the deal over the line is something called constructive ambiguity, which is the idea that you could sort of interpret it in a number of different ways. And so then countries could sign up because it's like, okay, cool, if I can interpret it how I like, then uh, that, that sort of makes it easy. The problem then is that immediately after that, we had to write a rule book. Uh, and of course, a rule book means very little ambiguity. And so there's just been this ongoing series of negotiations where a whole bunch of countries are kind of saying, well, hang on, that's not what I thought I was signing up to. We got much of it over the line at Katowice a couple of years ago. In, in Poland, um, but there are still some outstanding uh, components, some of which are, in New Zealand's view, uh, critically important. And those are mostly around uh, environmental integrity, transparency, and some of the, you know, the mechanisms to support international cooperation uh, to reduce emissions globally. And so Glasgow uh, is important because it's sort of seen as one of the last opportunities to get that stuff over the line. Uh, but also because, uh, you know, we are now at the beginning of the Paris period, right, from 2020 to 20, 2030. Uh, and so we know that countries around the world have collectively committed to a level of action that is insufficient to hold the 
temperature increases around the world to 1.5 degrees. And so because this conference was delayed from last year uh, and, you know, the pandemic and sort of taking the wind out of everybody's sails and, and focusing attention on, on that, uh, this, this is a really important conference because it's in many ways about um, rebuilding the momentum from Paris, but also uh, it's sort of seen as um, one of the kind of last opportunities to really ramp up that, that level of, of ambition around the world. What do you see as your role there in, at this meeting where you're surrounded by the global powers? I mean, what, what difference does mm. it make to have you there? Well, I, I kind of see my role really is to support our uh, diplomatic efforts. So, you know, we have this crew uh, of people from Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, from the Ministry for the Environment, the Ministry of Primary Industries and so on, uh, who are technical experts um, who are kind of working on various parallel negotiations, some of which I sort of mentioned before. And the talks have been going on all year in a virtual forum, and the conference itself is two weeks long, um, and the th- I'm not going to go to the first week, I go to the second week, which is when the you know ministers and prime ministers and so on, heads of government, show up. Um, and the idea is that by the time it gets to the political level that the the diplomats and the technicians have kind of gotten to uh, where they think a a landing zone or a series of landing zones is Um, and then essentially the idea is for uh, there to be a political decision to conclude the the talks. We have always sent a minister in part because other countries' leaders and ministers uh, will want to talk to a minister. The other reason is that because it eventually gets to a a sort of a political decision, if you like, there are kind of positions that we hold quite strongly to, and I mentioned, you know, ones around environmental integrity and transparency, where even though we're a small country, there are more small countries than there are large countries, and collectively we can uh, form quite a block. And so one of my jobs really is to... marshal and work with similar-minded countries uh, to try and make sure that the sort of standards that we want to hold on to are are held on to. What does environmental integrity and transparency even mean? Well, (laughs) that that, that is a good question. Uh, And and that that essentially is is what people are trying to thrash out uh, through these talks. I'll I'll give you an example uh, around transparency is... um, because in the Paris Agreement, the goals that we set for ourselves are nationally determined. That's why, we, that's why we call them nationally determined contributions. And there's no particular formula on, on how you would do that. So New Zealand has a target of a, currently, a, a target of reducing our emissions by 30% below 2005 levels by the year 2030. We use a calculation for that. Other countries would use a different calculation it, it becomes incredibly difficult to compare um, apples with apples between countries. And yet it is critically important that we can do so um, because we know that there is effectively a global carbon budget, i.e. how much pollution we can keep putting into the atmosphere before we pass that threshold of 1.5 degrees of global warming. If there's no transparency and no comparability uh, between countries, uh, it becomes nigh on impossible to work out whether collectively we are on track.
I did a podcast just recently about the last 30 years in New Zealand. So is it is it a bit embarrassing going to this conference when New Zealand does have such a poor track record and talking about environmental integrity and transparency? I would say it's nothing short of a tragedy, but the really bad news is that virtually no other country on earth took action in those 30 years either. So, yes, I think it is embarrassing for us that you know we, we did have this window of opportunity in the early 1990s to turn things around, and we, and we didn't. Um, and now we're trying to make up an enormous amount of lost ground in a very short period of time, which makes the transition far steeper and far more challenging than it would have been if we'd started properly 30 years ago. There are a handful of countries that have actually reduced their... Uh, emissions since 1990, which is the kind of common baseline year that, that we generally count as, as the sort of starting point. But it's a tiny portion of, uh, of countries. We don't have a plan yet. So when you go to these meetings, what do you say about what's happening in New Zealand? We've done a lot of things over the last four years. So we talk a lot about what we have been doing uh, and you know, setting up the institutional framework and putting the 1.5 degrees goal into our primary legislation and that kind of thing, setting up the commission uh, and so on. But for the Glasgow talks, uh, what's important will be uh, kind of three things. First of all, that we uh, go in with a nationally determined contribution that is significantly higher than the one that was set in 2016. And that's going to be based on the advice that the Climate Change Commission gave us at the end of May, where they said that we that our NDC is currently not consistent with a 1.5 degree pathway, and that in order to do so, we would have to be substantially higher than 36%. So Cabinet's kind of working through that at the moment, what that looks like, so that, so that we absolutely need, because that will really be seen as a marker of whether we're playing the game or not. Second of all is an increase in our commitment to what we call climate finance, um, which is really a sort of a climate-related overseas development assistance program, our, our aid program. And the context for that is that really at the heart of the Paris Agreement was a deal between the developed world and the developing world that the developed world would contribute $100 billion a year of climate finance to the developing world to aid them with the transition. And frankly, the developed world has not delivered on that commitment. And so New Zealand has made a a contribution to that, but um, our contribution probably doesn't uh, stack up. What we did was we uh, set a contribution for $300 million New Zealand over four years we are, we've actually already spent that, so we're on track, we think. We will probably actually deliver about $500 million. But the issue is that, as with the nationally determined contributions, our financial contribution, there's no formula for that either. Uh, and then the third thing um, is what's described <laughs> in um, the official parlance as a long-term low-emissions development strategy. And whilst that doesn't have the detail of the plan, we do have the high-level framework for how we are going to make the transition. So when you leave Glasgow, what do you think, and, and come back to New Zealand, what sort of 
announcements do you think you'll be making that ordinary New Zealanders are going to sort of sit up and take notice about? (laughs) Well, yeah, and and this is something that I I really appreciate is is that the kind of international mechanism um, is pretty arcane and not, not exactly retail. But what I hope to be able to say is that the Paris Agreement is back on track, that collectively we've got commitments for both our emissions reductions targets collectively around the world uh, and in terms of that support that we're providing to the developing world to, to make the transition so that, it, so that it's looking credible. This conference is probably the most important since Paris itself and I know that developing countries, the Pacific Island states and so on, are desperate for progress because the effects of climate change are really starting to be felt and that's having an impact on quality of life and also the extent of life uh, in some of these countries and and some of them do face an existential uh, threat. If the politics of COP26 leave you feeling despondent, Rod Oram reckons what happens at the fringes of the event offer real hope. The technologies have moved so fast, particularly on clean energy and others. The thinking has advanced so fast on regenerative agriculture and ecosystem restoration and nature-based solutions to both these co-crises of climate and ecosystem collapse. So now um, there is this huge sense of momentum around the gain. So finance is an investment is swinging behind this. Technology is accelerating very fast. Civil society is changing. So whereas the politicians at their part of COP will probably almost certainly still struggle with their, their global negotiations, hopefully they will, even if they don't, and I don't think they will, make some big binding commitments necessarily to um, emissions reductions. Hopefully they will make some big progress on the rules that are necessary uh, on how to account for emissions so we can see transparently what's going on, on how carbon is traded um, so we can make sure there's no rorts in that. So I hope they'll at least do something on all the rules. But even if we feel a bit despondent about that, and I think think we might well by the end of hmm. Glasgow. We need to, uh, we can, we should, we will take um, a lot of hope from what we're seeing on the gain side. So that's why the civil society part of COP is so important. That's why it's funny they're called side events. I, I think in some ways they're the main event, actually. Um, uh, that's where we need to look for you know, the inspiration, the sense of progress. So uh, what, why do you want to go to Glasgow, Rod? Quite simply, I'm determined to go to Glasgow because um, humanity is dealing with co-crises. It's the crisis of climate breakdown and it's the crisis of um, bi- biodiversity ecosystem collapse. And the two are completely um, related to each other and the solutions to one are the solutions to the other. And it's been very noticeable, particularly over this last year, how the, the UN has been bringing those two strands together. COP15 on biodiversity has been going on online and then in, soon in China. And COP26 on climate um, is going on in Glasgow. So as a journalist, I'm 
entirely focused on this. Now, I am a business journalist, but to me, this is the forefront of where business has to be because business has such an important role to play uh, when it does these things well in all of this. So I want to be there in Glasgow because um, the time is desperately short for humanity to get its act together on this. And there are two big parts of COP meetings. The first one is the political side where governments negotiate and that will be very intense and almost certainly there will be nowhere near as much progress as the world needs and we might want. The other part of COP is the very large civil society um, contingent of delegates there. So it's people from business and from NGOs and from research institutions and from all sorts of civil society organisations and lots of journalists. Yeah. And um, it's really a coming together, a, a, a huge hooey of people from pretty much every country in the world to share their hopes, their fears, their ideas, um, their new technologies and everything else. And so the side events at COP are huge. As I understand it, in this COP, we journalists will have less access to the rooms and the corridors where the political negotiations are going on. So by default, we're going to have more time for civil society. So describe these side events and what does it mean, civil society input? I'll give you two examples. I can't resist the temptation to start with a journalistic one. The New York Times has got this enormous complex booked alongside COP. And, and day in, day out, it's got the most extraordinary program of speakers and workshops. I mean, they're playing a big leadership role. So that's one example. Another example, very close to home, is the Global Dairy Platform, um, started up by Andrew Ferrier when he was chief executive of Fonterra to try to bring the, the big dairy companies of the world together to work on some of their big issues. But that would be um, a very interesting example of a side event very relevant to us. So this would be the big dairy companies of the world saying, yeah, there is a problem uh, and this is our contribution to trying to solve it. And I just want to be there to be part of that because I just, I really need to learn so much more and so I can be useful back here. What are the logistics of it for you, though? I mean, what are your days going to be like? Is it just going from meeting to meeting to meeting? <laughs> I I know one thing about myself. I need about seven hours sleep a night uh, and <laughs> I'm going to have to be good about that. Uh, otherwise, I I won't be very functional. The second thing is I want to be able to report back a lot every day and I'm a slow writer. So rather than trying to spend quite a few hours every day writing, um, I'm going to make my daily reports um, podcasts back to newsroom because mm. um, I think I can be rather more efficient at that and I hope listeners will bear with me I, I've got some very powerful software that automatically removes all my ums and ers and ahs <laughs> my filler words so uh, I will sleep I will prepare podcasts I will eat a bit but the rest of the time I'm going to be out and about um, I see the huge array of side events that are already up on the UN's website I, I've got the um, two week agenda of um, 
World Leaders Summit for two days and then various theme days such as nature and energy and, and then the intense negotiations and then really importantly the very strict deadline of midnight on the last day November the 12th because it's at that confronted by that absolutely rigid deadline that's when governments and countries um, start to concede start to uh, reach some kind of agreement I mean that's how it was in Paris in 2015 is how it is in every COP. There's been quite a bit of hoo-ha about James Shaw and a small contingent going there why does New Zealand need to be there we're a tiny country we have a pretty poor emissions record so Really, what's in it for us? We have to be there for a couple of really important reasons. The first one is um, decisions that are going to be made there, which will have a big impact on us. Um, but the second point is, is even more important. New Zealand has a very hard-earned and distinguished record in international fora, United Nations um, General Assemblies, um, the WTO, APEC, you know, these climate negotiations, you name it, we're there. Because New Zealand, um, as a very small country, we don't have an agenda. We're, we're not trying to dominate some other country. We're not trying to, I used to say in years gone by, nick their oil fields. Um, nobody wants hmm. to do that these days. Anyway, but the world's too big for us to go stomping around. But we do have some goals. You know, we want and need open trade. As a small country, we need and want good international rule-based order. So New Zealand diplomats have a great reputation for being very good to work with, and very creative in the solutions they come up with to put new ideas on the table, to break deadlocks. And I'll give you a, a really important example. Back in 2015 at the Paris negotiations, there was this concept of um, each country um, making its own nationally determined contribution to reducing emissions, the NDCs. It, there were a lot of hope going into Paris because at that time the US and China were working together um, to try to get some broader agreement. I'll come back to how uh, dysfunctional that relationship is today, which is a problem for Glasgow. But anyway, that almost didn't work um, at Paris because those two countries and many others were worried that those, determ those nationally determined contributions would be legally binding. But it was New Zealand diplomats in Paris who worked out and suggested um, a, a way around that, a language that satisfied all needs. And that got the US and China on board. And thus we had the Paris Agreement. Now, the Paris Agreement is not perfect. Um, the commitments countries have made would give us a temperature getting towards three degrees centigrade, not the one and a half we need to get to. But the point is, um, Paris was a very good start and Glasgow builds on that. So it's really important um, that we're there because that's the role New Zealand plays internationally.
That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The Detail is public interest journalism funded by NZ On Air and is a joint newsroom RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. Alexia Russell produced this episode. Jeremy Ansel engineered it. Thanks to James Shaw and Rod Oram. Kakite anō.